Good afternoon. Uh, join me in prayer again before we get started. And pray with me too. Pray that God would speak to us through His Word. God, that He'd convict us, that He'd encourage us. Uh, if someone is here who doesn't know Jesus or listening live stream, pray that they would uh, be drawn by the power of the Spirit to Jesus. They would trust in Him. But join me in prayer right now. God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we're thankful that we can be here today, God, to, to worship together. God, to, to come to your word. I pray that through, God, your preaching right now of your word, that you would turn our eyes to you. Jesus, help us to see your glory in the scriptures, how you are all-powerful. God, how you have all authority over all things. God, how you are perfectly compassionate. Lord, we ask you that you give us understanding of that, a deeper understanding. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, be encouraged to, to come to you by faith, God, the one who has all power, authority, and compassion. And Lord, we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, as a parent, there have been certain moments where Jessica and I have been deeply moved by the suffering of one of our two kids. So much so that, you know, I, I would do anything to help relieve them of it. You know, whether they're sick, you know, they're in pain. I remember one time when Levi was around two years old, he had such a, a high fever. He was kind of lethargic, you know, crying out to the point where we got in the car and rushed him to Norton's Children's Hospital. Because at that point, we had exhausted everything that we knew that we could do to break his fever, but nothing was working. You know, maybe it was just that we were, you know, new parents, were, maybe we were overreacting. But we felt this deep mix of emotions to the core of our being. You know, a compassion for our little boy that led us to do something to help alleviate his suffering. You know, biblical, the biblical definition of compassion means to be deeply moved with intense emotions like kindness and mercy and love, sympathy and pity when encountered by those who are vulnerable and suffering. But true biblical compassion isn't just a deep inward emotion that we only feel, which results in us doing nothing. But it also compels us to act on behalf of those who are suffering. Similar to a way a, a mother hears the cries of her, her vulnerable and helpless baby, and she responds to it. And maybe a simple way for us as believers to define compassion is to be deeply moved to take godly action. To be deeply moved to take godly action. And our compassion, it reflects God's compassion because we are created in His image. We're image bearers. But his is different in that his emotions are not tainted by sin. And unlike us, he has all power and authority over all things so that his compassionate responses towards his children are always perfect. And he's always accomplishing his purposes. In fact, the very first word that God used to describe himself in the Old Testament is the word compassionate. He describes himself to Moses in Exodus by saying, The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Around 80% of the, the time that the word compassion is used in the Old Testament, it's used 
to describe God who's deeply moved by the suffering and the cries of His people to act on their behalf. He hears the desperate cries of the Israelites in the Old Testament and He's compelled by His compassion to rescue them over and over again. David writes in Psalm 103.13, which was our scripture reading for today, and he says, The Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him similar to a way, the way that a father shows compassion to his child. In the New Testament, God came in the flesh, Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment of compassion. And he was deeply moved by the suffering of others who came to Him, so much so that He embraced the outcast. And He healed the sick and the diseased by His power and authority. And it's no different today in our passage, which if you haven't already turned there, will be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And we will see Jesus' power, His authority, and His compassion put on display. And we'll be reminded that as we're faced with our own desperate situations, or as we see others who are suffering and faced with desperate situations, to come by faith to our compassionate Savior who has all power and authority, which is our main idea and our one main point today. Come by faith to our compassionate Savior who has all power and authority. And so as we turn there together, I just want to give us a brief context of this specific passage. So at the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus had already displayed His power and His authority by calming the storm as He and His disciples Uh, as they encountered it, as they crossed the Sea of Galilee. And when they reached the other side in the first 20 verses of chapter 5, Mark described how a man who was possessed with a, a legion or an army of demons approached Jesus and His disciples as they got out of the boat. Jesus then proceeded to display His power and His authority over demonic powers by casting out this legion of demons into a herd of pigs who run off the cliff into the sea. And so Jesus had, has power and authority over His creation. He has power and authority over spiritual powers. And here in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, we will see a story within a story. You know, a miracle within a miracle, which many people call a Markin sandwich. And Mark does this often throughout his gospel. One story sandwiched in the middle of a larger story. And he does this to highlight similarities and differences. And we'll see how Jesus displays His power and authority again in a perfectly compassionate way as He encounters two different people who have two totally different backgrounds, but who are both faced with desperate situations. In this story, it'll be broken into three different sections. The first being Jairus' desperate plea. The second being the interruption of the unnamed woman. The interruption of the unnamed woman. And then the third being the miraculous healing of Jairus' daughter. And usually I would like to read through the whole passage before we work through it, but today we're going to to read and allow the text to unfold to us as we work through it. So we're going to read it all, but we're going to read it as we work through it together. And so first, let's look at Jairus' desperate plea. In verses 21 through 22 of chapter 5, Mark writes, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. 
And so when they arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, as soon as they got out of the boat, they were bombarded by this huge crowd of people. You know, people who've likely heard about Jesus' growing reputation as, as being a great teacher, as one who displays His miraculous power and authority through performing miracles. And as this crowd surrounds Him, another man by the name of Jairus begins to approach Jesus. This man, he would have been a prominent, well-known, highly respected authority figure within the Jewish community because he's one of the leaders chosen to organize worship within the synagogue. He was a ruler of the synagogue. And so people within this community, they would have known who Jairus is. And keep in mind that the people in the community probably knew how much the religious leaders, or how, how most of the religious leaders felt about Jesus. They despised him. And at this point in the Gospel of Mark, they were already plotting his destruction. I'm sure Jairus heard many of his colleagues' strong opinions about this Jesus. But the text say, says in verses 22 through 23 that Jairus approaches Jesus in front of this large crowd of people and he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, or he begged Jesus. And for a man like Jairus to publicly fall at the feet of Jesus would take desperation, humility, and I believe some degree of faith. To fall at the feet of the one that so many religious leaders despised would mean risking the religious position that he held. And so what would bring him to the point, this point of desperation? Well, we learn from Jairus in verse 23 that his little girl is at the point of death. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that this is his only daughter, and she's only 12 years of age, and now she's on her deathbed. And so he approaches Jesus in this crowd of people, desperate, helpless, humbled, and by faith he falls before Jesus and makes this request of him in verse 23. He says, Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And so how does Jesus respond? He doesn't look at Jairus and say, man, you're just one of those religious leaders who despise me. You'll be gone with you. And he, and he doesn't say, hey, Jairus, I'm, I'm too busy with this large crowd of people. Can't you see that? I don't have time for you right now. Now the text says in verse 24, and Jesus went with him. He is compassionate towards those who come to him by faith. This is who Jesus is. He cares for the individual. He cares for you as an individual. He's available, approachable, and He enters into this desperate situation that Jairus as a parent is faced with. And we've been there before, right? You know, maybe God's used circumstances and our own stories to drive us to the point of experiencing this deep kind of desperation. You know, Many of our salvation stories probably involve us being driven to that point in which we initially, by faith, cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus and ask Him to save us. You know, sometimes as believers, it's life's difficult circumstances can cause us to experience this feeling of desperation where our pride's stripped away, you know, we're humbled, and if we come to Him by faith, He is always there. He's available to hear our pleas and to respond with a perfect compassion in those moments. 
But sometimes His compassionate response towards us may not always play out in the way that we envision it to. Now, I'm sure that when Jairus found out that Jesus would go with him to heal his daughter, that he got a little pep in his step. He got pretty excited. Maybe a, a little bit of hope was born within him. You know, let's go, Jesus. You said that you would come. Let's go. Let's hurry. Let's get back to my house and heal my daughter. But the problem is, is it says in verse 24 that this crowd was wanting to come along as well. I mean, if you were in that crowd and you, and you knew who Jairus was, and you heard that Jesus was going to go and heal his daughter, wouldn't you want to go see this? The text says in verse 24 that this great crowd, they followed him and thronged about him, where they, they pressed around him, they crowded them. And it would have been like riding in an ambulance to the hospital with your dying child and getting stuck in slow traffic that just won't get out of the way. Now he likely had not had Jairus had some sense of urgency. But these people, they're delaying the process. But then without a moment to spare comes an even bigger interruption in verses 25 through 34. It's the second part of this passage, the interruption of the unnamed woman. Mark wrote in verses 25 through 26, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but, gra- but rather grew worse. And so this unnamed woman comes into the scene, and we learn that she suffered from some sort of discharge of blood for 12 years. You know, likely some sort of menstrual discharge. And she had spent all of her money that she had on numerous physicians who, who gave her no cure. But they actually only made the problem worse. And so she's motivated to find a cure because of her 12 years of physical suffering. But she would have also been motivated within that culture because she's also suffering from a religious or social isolation. What I mean by this is that according to Old Testament purity laws, as James Edwards writes, a woman was unclean for seven days after her monthly period. But if she had a problem that did not cease, as does this woman, she remained unclean throughout its duration. And this was strictly observed during the time of Jesus' ministry. So if anyone were touched by her, or if she, or if they touched this woman, according to Leviticus 15, they would be considered unclean. And so likely she did not have any family who were living with her. You know, no one would marry her. Or if she were married, there's a good chance that she could have been divorced at this point. Not only this, but she would have been banned from entering Jairus' synagogue or any other synagogue and worshiping with others. She would have been banished from the community in isolation until she was made clean again. And this was her life for 12 years at this point. A woman with a totally different, different background than Jairus, but like his situation, she is experiencing an enormous amount of desperation as well. And so we can understand, as the text says in verse 27, that when she hears the reports about all that Jesus is doing, that He's in town, that she's willing to do anything she can to come to Jesus. Even willing to take the great risk of breaking the Old Testament purity law and putting others at risk of becoming unclean through her touch so that she can approach Jesus. But if you notice, 
she approaches Jesus differently than Jairus did. See, Jairus, he publicly came in front of Jesus before the crowd and, and fell at Jesus' feet. But this woman, she covertly tries to sneak up behind him through the crowd, not wanting to draw attention to herself as he's walking with this crowd to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. And she, in verses 27 through 29, Mark writes, touched his garment. For she said, if, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So the woman touches Jesus' clothing and immediately, like that, the flow of blood ceases. The flow of blood that she suffered from for 12 years where she could find no cure from anyone else. She touches Jesus and she is healed by His power and authority. And it seems as if she thought that she could just sneak back out of the crowd, you know, sneak out of there without anyone ever knowing what had happened. But Mark explains in verses 30 through 31, And Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power had gone out from Him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And His disciples said to Him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And I love the disciples' response in verse 31. It's so funny because they're like, Jesus, what kind of question is this? You've got this huge crowd of people who are following along, pressing in on us. Likely most of these people have touched you. What do you mean who has touched you? But Jesus knows what has happened. And so he turns around and he asks the question. And the woman responds. Look at verse 33. It says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, could you imagine the, the mix of emotions that she is experiencing? She's healed. She's, she has been, Jesus has healed her by His power and authority unlike anyone else was able to do because He is God who has all power and authority over disease and sickness. I mean, there has to be this, this joy and excitement of just being completely healed from what has wrecked her life for the past 12 years. But she's also just broken the Old Testament purity law by touching the people in the crowd that she made her way through and by touching Jesus while being unclean. And so she falls before Him with what I believe is a, it's a, it's a reverent fear and trembling. And she spills out the whole truth to Jesus. Not knowing how He or the crowd will respond but listen to his compassionate response to her in verse 34. And he, Jesus, said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so her fear and trembling is not met with anger or reproach. But he addresses her as daughter. He responds to her as a compassionate Savior. He highlights her example of faith. Her faith has made her well, he says. And obviously, Jesus is the one who has healed her of her disease. But the unnamed woman came by faith to her compassionate Savior who has all power and authority. But there's something else that's really amazing about Jesus' response to the unnamed woman here. You see, Jesus, he, he could have just responded by showing compassion to her 
in the exact way that she desired and expected. She expected to sneak into that crowd, touch Jesus' clothes, be healed, and then sneak back out. You're never being noticed. She didn't want to draw attention to herself. But Jesus shows compassion to her in a much greater way. By Him publicly calling her out and having her respond in front of this huge crowd of people, Jesus was able to declare that she had been healed and made clean. So she's not only restored physically, but she's restored back into the community that she's been isolated from for 12 years. You know, this interruption was actually just another opportunity to, for Jesus to display His power and authority and His compassionate care for those who come to Him by faith. Which leads us into the rest of the story. You know, remember, Jairus, he's standing back to the side as all this is taking place. And we don't know exactly how much time has passed by as Jesus is, is having this conversation with this woman. Mark only records two verses of the actual verbal interaction between Jesus and the unnamed woman. In verse 33, the text said that she told him the whole truth, which this could mean she explained her whole story to Jesus. This is probably just it's more than just a five or a ten minute conversation. And I couldn't imagine being Jairus and being in his shoes at that moment. When Jesus stops to perform this miracle, you know, I would have become antsy, worried, anxious. Because there's not much time left. His daughter is on her deathbed. You know, every second is precious. It, it would have almost been like riding in that ambulance with your child. On the way to the hospital, you're weaving in and out of slow traffic, and now the traffic stops altogether. Because there's a wreck, there's a roadblock, there's nowhere to go. And so you wait. But Jesus' plans, they're not thrown off because of what we would view as interruptions. Because He is in control of all things. These interruptions are actually a part of His plan. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking for Jairus' daughter. He's probably ready to pick up Jesus on his shoulder and, and sprint to his house. But listen to verse 35 as we begin to focus back in on the third part in the story. The miraculous healing of Jairus' daughter. Mark writes in verse 35, While he, Jesus, was, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And so now Jairus' worst nightmare has come true. What he feared would happen if they did not make it back in time has come to pass. He's failed. His daughter has been pronounced dead, and they tell Jairus, well, what's the point in having Jesus come? What can He do now? And Jesus, overhearing the conversation, says to Jairus in verses 36 through 38, Jesus responds by saying, Do not fear, only believe. And He, Jesus, allowed no one to follow Him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. You know, during first century Judaism, mourners were required at funerals and would usually accompany the family of the deceased from their house to the grave. You know, they would often actually hire mourners or flute players as well. And the, the mourners were usually women who would follow along as James Edwards writes, clapping their hands together and wailing these haunting laments. 
And so by the time that Jesus and the others arrive at Jairus' house, they've already begun this process, wailing and weeping. And Jesus said to them in verse 39, in part of verse 40 here, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Their show of mourning and wailing quickly turns to laughter and ridicule when Jesus makes these comments. You know, sleeping Jesus? <laughs> I mean, we've been to enough of these events to know when someone is dead. And they're right. About one thing, Jesus's, I mean, Jairus' daughter is dead. But Jesus proceeds to, as the text says in verses 43-43, He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with Him and, and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And there were... And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. And so Jesus, he orders everyone to get out of the room except his disciples, Jairus and the mother. And he walks over to this girl's lifeless body. He grabs her by the hand and he commands her to arise. And immediately she's raised from the dead at his command and she walks around the room as everyone stands in amazement of the display of, of Jesus' power and authority over death. In the end, Jairus, he came desperately by faith to Jesus in hopes that he would show compassion to his little girl by healing her. But the compassionate care shown by Jesus is not what he wanted or expected. Jairus did not expect to be interrupted and delayed by the unnamed woman, and he did not want his little girl to die. But in the end, Jesus shows compassion towards Jairus and his family in a much greater way. They get to witness firsthand the power and the authority of Jesus put on display as he raises their little girl back to life. And so we've seen today in our text, Jesus' encounter with two people, with two totally different backgrounds. You know, one of these people, a man named Jairus, wealthy, respected, a synagogue ruler honored in the Jewish community who had 12 years of joy being a father to his daughter, and then an unnamed woman, poor, rejected, an outcast in society, looked down upon because of her uncleanness, with 12 years of misery from her sickness. Two very different people, two very different backgrounds, but they had one thing in common. They were both experiencing desperate situations, and in their desperation, they came by faith to Jesus who has all power and authority and He compassionately cares for them. And so as we reflect on, on this story that shows Jesus' power, authority, and compassion, what are some points of application for us? You know, maybe there are some of us today who are doing pretty well. We're not, we're not faced with any seriously desperate situations. Well, our first point of application is does our compassion reflect His compassion? Does our compassion reflect His compassion? See, Jesus, He's compassionate to all those who come to Him by faith, whether it be a prominent person in society like Jairus or a lowly unnamed woman who's considered a nobody or an outcast. He doesn't discriminate. 
He has an awareness of the suffering of others. He's approachable. He's available. He's deeply moved and ready to act on behalf of those who are suffering. And so in turn, I ask, is this the disposition that we have towards those who are suffering? Are we compassionate towards others? Are we deeply moved by the suffering of others so much so that we are willing to take action? You know, He has given us His Spirit to show compassion to others. We are His hands and His feet, the body of Christ. Are we willing to meet others in their desperate situations and help alleviate their suffering, you know, maybe by some tangible means? Or just by the giving of our time, which sometimes I feel like that's more precious to me. The giving of our time to be present, to listen to their suffering, to listen to their struggle. In either way, the ultimate goal is that this provides a way for us either to introduce them or remind those who are suffering about our compassionate Savior who has all power and authority to bring about true peace through the gospel within their desperate situations. And so if we're not deeply moved to take action, then what's holding us back? You know, maybe it could be that we've just become so busy that we're unaware of, of the suffering that is, exists around us. Or, or it could be that we know about the suffering of certain people, but maybe we avoid them because we think that they take up too much of our time. We view them as an interruption. You know, and, I, and I definitely believe that we should be wise with how we spend our time and be faithful at, at keeping our commitments to others. But are we willing to be approachable are we willing to be interrupted by the suffering of others for the sake of the gospel? You know, Jesus, he was pretty much a celebrity within this story, surrounded by a crowd of people who always wanted his attention. But he was approachable. He was willing to be interrupted by both Jairus and the unnamed woman. If you struggle, just like I do, to have a heart of compassion towards others who are suffering, that I would encourage you to ask God to give you a heart of compassion. That we would be deeply moved with what moves Him and that we would take action in a way that would honor Him as we meet others in their desperate situations as they suffer. And maybe there are some of us here today who are struggling with difficult situations of our own. We are desperate. And so if that's you, then I want to encourage you with this second point of application, which is trust Jesus with your desperate situation. Trust Jesus with your desperate situation. So God, He uses different means and people to help alleviate our suffering. But are we mainly trusting in, trusting in things or people to bring about a resolution? And maybe like the unnamed woman, you've exhausted every means possible to try to fix your situation, and it's only led to the realization that you do not have the power and the authority to fix the situation that you're faced with. You know, Jesus, He often uses desperation as a means to drive us to a deeper trust in Him. And I say that knowing that that can be very, very difficult. It's not easy. But this means us being placed in uncomfortable situations being confronted with different afflictions and being driven to the point where we feel that desperation and realize that we are powerless, that we are weak and unable to change our situations. And when we become hopeless, and, and when we, we experience these desperate, desperate situations, we can either become hopeless in our desperation or like Jairus and the unnamed woman, we can come by faith 
and cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus who compassionately cares for us. The one who has all power and who has all authority. Which leads us to our third point of application. And so are we trusting Him with our desperate situations? But thirdly, as we continue to do this, when He doesn't respond in the way that we want Him to or expect Him to, the third point is fear not, but believe that He is compassionately working for your greatest good. Fear not, but believe that He is compassionately working for your greatest good. You know, maybe some of us here have been coming to Jesus with our desperate situations and it seems like nothing is going to change. Or either they're not changing as quickly as we want things to change. And it's in those moments that we can begin to doubt that He is compassionately caring for us. We can begin to doubt whether He hears us. We can begin to fear that nothing will ever change. And we can become hopeless in fear that this is it. And if that's you, then I want to encourage and affirm these truths to you, brothers and sisters, that He hears you when you come to Him. He hears your pleas. That if you're in Christ, He loves you with a steadfast love and compassionately cares for you and your well-being. And that He is compassionately, even though you may not be able to realize it, He's compassionately working for your good. Which means that similar to the story of Jesus' encounter with Jairus and the unnamed woman, the way that He responds to our desperate pleas may not be the way that we want or expect Him to. But He does want our greatest good, which may not be what we think is our greatest good. It may mean that, he'll, he, it may mean that he will alleviate our suffering. Or it may mean that it will remain. And if He doesn't alleviate it, then it does not mean that He doesn't compassionately care for you. Whatever He allows, He is using to bring about what's best for us. There's a way that He, he mysteriously uses our suffering to help us know Him in a deeper way, you know, to help us to become more Christ-like, you know, to help better equip us to be able to enter into those who we will encounter later on who are suffering, to walk with them in that. So don't become discouraged when it seems like He's not answering your pleas when you come to Him. But remember that He is compassionate and that He loves you dearly. He's responding in a compassionate way even though you may not be able to see it yet. And so do not fear, but believe. Continue coming to Him and trusting that He hears you. Believe that He compassionately cares for you and that He's always working to bring about your greatest good. And our last point of application is pretty simple. It's, you know, we've seen how Jesus, He's approachable, He's available, He's ready to show compassion to those who will come to Him by faith. And so our fourth, fourth point, our final point of application, our conclusion is, will you come? You know, if you've already trusted in Christ for salvation, but you haven't come to Him for a little while because you're struggling with doubt and discouragement, will you come to Jesus and cast yourself before Him again? Maybe you're not currently faced with a desperate situation, but you desire to reflect the heart of compassion that Jesus has and how you care for others. Will you come before Him and ask Him to give you a heart of compassion that reflects His heart of compassion? If you're here today listening via live stream or here today with us, and you've never initially come to our compassionate Savior by faith to receive salvation, then I urge you to cast yourself before Him 
and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. You know, God the Father, in His perfect, compassionate way, He did not leave us in our sin, but He provided a way of salvation by sending Jesus to take on our sin in His body, to willingly go to the cross, and He endured the wrath and the punishment that we deserve, so that if we come to Him by faith, trust in Him that we will be saved. Jesus said in John 6, 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so will you come to Him by faith? Now, he's the only one who can touch those who are spiritually unclean and make them clean. He's the only one who can take those who are spiritually dead and raise them to new life. He's the only one who has the power and the authority to do this. And He's willing to do this if you come. And so, in conclusion, I urge us all to come by faith to the compassionate Savior who has all power and authority. Let's pray. God, You are, you are good. We are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that, God, You are the only one who has truly, truly has all compassion and, or has all authority and power, Jesus. But we're thankful that You don't rule over us like some kind of ruthless dictator, but You are one who has all power and authority and who is perfectly compassionate. God, help us to, to meditate on these truths. Help us to, to believe these truths. For those of us who are suffering here, help us to believe those truths, Lord. Help us to, to trust in You, to come before You and cast ourselves before You. God, I pray for those who don't know You, God, that haven't initially casted themselves before You by faith, that You would draw them to Yourself, that You'd save them, that You'd help them to see that You are compassionate, God, that you have all power and authority to raise them from death to life. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen.